This is the last Sunday after Epiphany. It's been a long haul this year, the Sundays after Epiphany. Uh, we have a calendar in the workroom in the office that we get from the church insurance company or the church pension group or something. And this month's cartoon is uh, a drawing of a, a sta staff in a parish. And the rector is saying to everyone, um, gee, there have been so many Sundays after Epiphany that we've, we've run out of hymns for Epiphany. You know, what, what, what are we going to do? And... Uh, one of the people on the staff said, well, how come Easter is so late this year? Is that something the diocese did? <laughs> That's a, well, where do you begin kind of thing, right? But the last Sunday after Epiphany in the liturgical calendar for Episcopalians is always uh, the Transfiguration. So in one sense, two times a year, once on August the 6th, and then uh, on the last Sunday after Epiphany, we have the opportunity to speak about uh, the Feast of the Transfiguration and its meaning. And it's one of my favorite feasts because it has something to do with transformation and renewal. In the Roman Catholic Church, they read the Epiphany readings on the second Sunday in Lent. And we do it on just before we begin Lent because we think it's Good preparation is a reminder of what's going to come out of the other end of a season of serious self-examination and repentance and reflection about a number of things. And uh, depending on how people uh, appropriate the season of Lent, it can be kind of a trial to have to spend all that time thinking about Lent or whatever it is. But we'll get to that when we get into Lent after Ash Wednesday. So I have the opportunity to preach today about all of the readings. We read in the first cycle of the three-year cycle, Matthew's version of the Transfiguration. Matthew, uh, the, the Transfiguration story appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in the reading you heard from Second Peter today. So I'm going to say a word about that uh, and so on. Remember the season of Epiphany, the Sundays after Epiphany, uh, are about uh, making manifest the presence of God. And so when we talk about that, we think about making manifest in terms of our own personal relational life. How do we commend the, our greatest place of safety and assurance to other people? How do we listen to the practical wisdom that we learn from other people? How do we understand somehow uh, being present to the world? And I say to you over and over again, you know, evangelism uh, has something to do with being the best human being that you can be. And when people get to know who you are and what animates you, and uh, they seem to see that somehow your emotional, spiritual, and mental states are squared away, they might want to know uh, something about how you got there. And maybe someday they'll ask. And then you have an opportunity to tell them uh, about what that might mean for you. But Epiphany is also about the manifestation of Christ to the world through the church, the universal significance of the manifestation of Christ. And sometimes, you know, because it's not particularly in vogue these days, talking about the church as a collective institution uh, raises for some people all kinds of... Uh, connotations, 
Many of them, I think, are unjustified, but there it is. N.T. Wright, who was the Bishop of Durham, no longer, uh, in a recent book wrote about the church, and he said this, the church is the single multi-ethnic family promised by God to Abraham. It was brought into being through Israel's Messiah, Jesus. It was energized by God's Spirit, and it was called to bring the transformative news of God's rescuing justice to the whole creation. That's a fancy way of speaking about, you know, how uh, God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And that that message is what we extend to all people. And that the message of the Savior was that in his words and in his works, he was affirming that the testimony of the sacred literature of his people, that God's saving embrace was not just for the people of the covenant, but it was for everyone, and that it was incumbent upon the people of the covenant not to think of themselves as people vested with special privileges, but with opportunities and obligations with regard to the invitation and the welcome. And so in this, we see the importance of the church. I also happen to believe, even though it's rather glib, that uh, uh, Herbert O'Driscoll, the great Canadian priest, um, one of the, uh, a very fine preacher, uh, once said in a lecture that he gave in this diocese, any spirituality worth its salt institutionalizes. Any spirituality worth its salt institutionalizes. Robert Hovda, a Roman Catholic priest who wrote often on the liturgy for a scholarly magazine called Worship, uh, particularly in the era when everybody said, well, the institutional church this and the institutional church that, and oh, well, it's in the institution. He'd say there ain't no other kind. <laughs> right? So here we are. So when we think about making manifest, it is in and through the church and the people of God. Being God's people in the world, as the prayer says often. And I think that's, uh, that's an important thing to say, and this season has something to do with that. Exodus sets us up for the transfiguration. It takes place on a mountain. There's a cloud. There's fire. It's an epiphany. And Moses goes up to the mountain, and what's going to flow out of this experience is that he will come back down he will deliver the law to the people, and he himself will be transfigured. And people will see it on his face. And I'll say something about that in a, in a couple of minutes. But it, it's an example of the transfiguration and of the fact that God seeks mediatorial aid from the creatures that he made and called good. And you and I, as, as Episcopalians, as Christians, would say that the way in which we see God's mediating power operate on a regular basis, Sunday to Sunday, is through the sacraments. That that's how outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual graces get made present, and that we affirm that, and each person has access to that power and that connection with God. So Exodus sets us up for that. Second Peter is probably, in the view of most, most biblical scholars, is the, is the latest 
uh, piece of literature in the New Testament. It dates maybe 125 uh, A.D. And um, the interesting thing about this, and that's why people study this stuff, is that the description of the transfiguration here may in fact be from a tradition earlier than what we read in the Gospels. So it could certainly have come from Peter as, as an eyewitness, but the author of Second Peter was uh, in all probability not Peter. You know? This is a hard nut for people to, uh, or, or it's a hard thing to swallow, but in the ancient world, uh, attributing authorship to somebody other than yourself was considered vesting uh, authority in the piece of writing that you wrote. It was not a moral lapse, <laughs> okay? It was not considered something that was a deliberate uh, deception. It's hard for us to believe that and to think that way, but that is the truth. So if you quote somebody, uh, as, as you, if you attribute the writing to Peter, that writing has the authority of the person that the piece of literature is named for. So that's why we have Second uh, Peter in 125 A.D. when Peter got killed in 62, thereabouts, in, in Rome, just so you know. But here's the piece that I've always liked in this reading. First of all, you must understand this that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by human will but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit from God. This is also a hard thing to swallow, particularly from groups of Christians who have been deeply influenced by the Protestant Reformation because depending upon the, the species of Protestantism that you're a part of, and we're part of one of them, uh, there are those who believe that it's me and my Bible, and so what I read and say it means is what it means, right? So that has given rise to uh, a gazillion crackpot interpretations of the Bible, and most of the fighting that goes on within Christianity is because of these interpretations. Now... One of the things that created the, 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 the response in the, in the Continental Reformation was that when uh, you apply what Peter or the author of this epistle has said, uh, we all know that institutional interpretations can become tricky over time. But there needs to be some sort of a, of a middle way between these two, uh, you know, here's the interpretation and it's whatever I say it is, you know. I don't, I'm not, a, haven't ever been a Baptist, but isn't there something called soul liberty that has something to do with our ability to do this, you know? I've heard people, you know, I came out of a religious tradition in this country called Christian science. Now there's a biblical interpretation for you. <laughs> science and health with key to the scriptures by Mary Baker Eddy. Unlocked it, and here we are, right? Mrs. Eddy. I grew up with Mrs. Eddy. I can remember my grandparents being sort of patronizing and long-suffering with Roman Catholics who they believed were completely mired in the most god-awful superstition that you could imagine, <laughs> and Episcopalians 
weren't very far behind. It was well, we might as well be, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, 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 you know, they'd go over to some close friend, though, who's a Roman Catholic in their house, and there'd be a statue of Mary or some sort of a crucifix or something like that. And uh, sometimes you'd drive home after dinner and there'd be comment made on this. So one day, I was just a little boy, I'd go to my, to my grandparents' house, my brother and me were over there all the time. My grandmother was a Christian science practitioner for 45 years, and she had her own study. And you'd go in the study, and the first thing you would see was a portrait, this big, of Mary Baker Eddy. And all kinds of little, in the room Eddy and I slept in, you know, on the, on the thing like this as you came into the door and you went back outside was a prayer uh, for bedtime for Mary Baker. It was like a mezuzah, you know. You'd kind of <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, you do that sort of thing. So, you know, it just depends, doesn't it? So when I say that we need to be concerned about interpretation, that's what it means. The church is at its best when it is engaged in the, in the interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, has established a tradition of interpretation. That's what the study of hermeneutics is all about. What is the history of the way we have interpreted these texts? And what is the conversation that we are going to entertain with regard to reading these texts and how do we understand them in light of our experience, the church's tradition, and what the text says, right? That's how, how Episcopalians do that. And so it gives you at least some idea of what it is that the Bible has, has been getting at. You know, when you stop to think about it, I never thought about it as, until I went to seminary, oddly enough, but when you're dealing with a document that's written in two or three ancient languages that has textual variations that are very important, that you have some idea, need to have some idea of the thought world out of which these texts emerged, it might be a good idea to sort of place your trust, at least partly, in the people who spend time on this. You know, we're willing to do it, uh, you know, I've told G.K. Chesterton, when people stop believing in God, it doesn't mean they don't believe in anything, it means they'll believe anything. <laughs> and, and that's what we're in now. That's today. You know, Charlie Sheen. <laughs> Good night, nurse. <laughs> you know? So, the author of Second Peter's on to something here about sort of placing yourself... There needs to be some sort of uh, attention paid to the tradition with a capital T with regard to the interpretation of the Holy Scriptures and how we've done that. And you know the important thing is, is that that interpretive power comes from people who have engaged the Holy Scriptures as a living witness and whose own lives have been altered by that experience and are willing to speak about it. So that's an important part of what we mean when we say the church interpreting the Holy Scriptures. That's the people of God with, uh, together thinking about all the evidence which is here now, which was there then, what's going to happen perhaps uh, in the future. The word transfiguration in Greek is metamorphosis. Do you know what that word? Have you heard that word? It means transformation in some way. Father Thomas Keating says, what happened on the mountain 
with the apostles and with Jesus was when he shone, that was the divine source of his human personality pouring out from every pore of his body. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, this is referred to as the uncreated light. So is this merely some sort of experience that the apostles had, those three or four? Or is it in fact something that you and I can appropriate or at least get close to in our own experience? Uh, the Eastern Church would say that we see human beings who manifest the uncreated light. That's what Moses did when he came down from the mountain in the story. Uh, and I thought, I thought in my mind, is, was there ever a time in my life, in, in a big or small way, that I, I saw somebody who might have reflected the uncreated light? And I think one of them, certainly one of the more dramatic ones, was when I was in seminary. I came back to San Francisco for uh, interviews with all of the, you know, the people in the institutional church who have to interview you and talk to you about whether you, you know, you should have you, you know, it's like you go see the psychiatrist and stuff to make sure you're really nuts before they let you <laughs> forward. And so uh, I go, we went, I, the Trinity Institute was happening, which is some, a, a thing sponsored then by Trinity Church on Wall Street. And one of the uh, speakers at the Trinity Institute was Brother Roger Schultz, who was the founder, one of them, of the These community in France. So he got up and, and, and spoke, gave his talk. And somebody that I knew there asked me if I'd like to meet him. And I said, yeah, sure. So he took me, and there was a break and everything, and he took me up to meet uh, Brother Roger. And I, on his, fa his face was the uncreated light. There was no doubt about it. I mean, I didn't know that term yet. But his face shone. There was no doubt about it. It was absolutely radiant and at peace, you know? He was just like St. Anthony of the desert in the third century when he came out of his cave after 25 years and everybody fogs out there to see hope coming out of his cave. So what's he gonna be like? And St. Athanasius in his biography of St. Anthony says, well, he comes out of his cave and here's what we saw. We saw a man who appeared not to be particularly happy to see us. He wasn't particularly unhappy to see us. He wasn't someone who had been wasted by hair-raising austerities. He was somebody who was somewhat affable. He was a man at home with himself. He was a man at home with him. That's just the exact uh, impression I had of Brother Roger Schultz, you know, and his friend who was there, from the other, uh, Max Thurian, who was a famous uh, monk of, of Teze as, as well. So, you know, it's something you can see. I think we see it in less dramatic ways, maybe with people who have had life-changing experiences of a positive kind, 
people who've been able to achieve some species of balance that you haven't seen in a while. There's a certain look on their face. There's a certain uh, peace, serenity, restfulness, whatever it is you wish to say. And that's part of what the uncreated light is. And of course, I speak about this because the transfiguration is in the Bible and is part of the church's celebration of the liturgical year because it is not something that happened just to this remote group, but it is something that, that people have experienced in the church's life. They know what metamorphosis means. And they've experienced it in commonplace ways, and some people have experienced it in dramatic ways. Matthew's gospel differs from Mark and Luke in reporting the uh, transfiguration in this way. When uh, they, this epiphany occurs, Jesus is you know, shown as shining before them. Moses, Elijah, you know, are there. And then they disappear. First of all, before I get to the, this, I should remind you about this. St. Peter is a perfect example of the person who seeks to perpetuate a mountaintop experience. You know, the great spiritual insights that you and I may have achieved in our life in big and small ways, we, it's normal for us to want them to go on forever and to figure out ways to freeze the moment and to become discouraged uh, and depressed when they don't seem to be coming either at all or with the rapidity they used to. And so wouldn't it be nice to be able to freeze that experience? So Peter says, it's a good thing we're here. We can build three booths, right? One for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. And you, they can sit there in these booths. You know, I always think in the NRSV, it's a different one now. Three somethings, I don't know, dwellings. But, you know, the, the booths were always like a guy sitting there on the front counter and saying, you know, get three balls and knock those bookends in. You know, or something, something like, uh, but anyway. You know, so Peter becomes for us, actually throughout the New Testament, every man. He has all the enthusiasms and failures of nerve and uh, things that all, all human beings have. And yet he somehow is uh, raised up to fill a function for uh, the purpose of making God manifest to the world. It's a good thing. Jesus leans over to the disciples after all of this has occurred. And the images disappear of Moses and Elijah and they are frightened. One of the responses in the Bible to the presence of God uh, is not joy, it's fear. And so, you know, we're always speaking about, no, you know, the ancients certainly, when God was around, they made him afraid if they... Dean Parsons used to say to us, it's like kneeling in church right next to a huge electric generator that's humming. <laughs> you know, you think, like, geez, is this thing ever going to stop? Or, you know, is it going to electrocute me? Or, you know, what's going to happen? Jesus leans over in Matthew's gospel to all the apostles there. 
and he touches them. And he says, do not be afraid. I think it's one of the, the, the true things about Jesus is that he was able to bring to people, um, I was going to say tamer picture of the deity. That may not be the best thing, but um, it was uh, the, the image that C.S. Lewis talks about when he critiques the pictures of Victorian angels. He said the difference between the, picture, uh, the, the, the depiction of angels in the Victorian period and the depiction of angels in the medieval period is this. The Victorian angels seem to have come down and said to each of us, there, there. <laughs> and the medieval angels have come down to say, fear not. Fear not. Their wings of love are beating now silently in this room. Their presence is with us. And in some way, you know, the Savior was able to say, this is the God that we worship and the one who is unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives. Pretty good. So this week, think about transformation, metamorphosis. As you enter the season of Lent, think about that being one of the ways in which we uh, seek to reconnect to the promises of God. And know that uh, that presence is always with us and has the power to change us. Amen.